The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, the Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, the Craft House Brewery, Moonshot.com, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. WLS Chicago. It's The Fake Show with Jim Toffey. The mid to late 60s in Chicago saw a burgeoning music scene with bands like Shadows of Night, New Colony 6, American Breed, The Buckinghams, The Ides of March, The Big Thing, which later became the Chicago Transit Authority, and The Cryin' Shames. The Shames had a number one hit in Chicago with It Could Be We're In Love, which also reached number 85 on the Billboard magazine chart nationally in 1967. They got off to a fast start with the song Sugar and Spice and later became the first local band to join The Birds, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and Bob Dylan on Columbia Records. Around this time, they produced the brilliant album A Scratch in the Sky, but just like the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds and the Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle, it wasn't initially well-received and eventually led to the breakup of the band. I'm fortunate enough to have gotten in touch with Cry and Shame's lead singer, Thomas Toad Duty, to talk about the past and the future of the band. Tom, so glad I found you. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you yeah. so much for remembering us. I appreciate that. Well, it certainly sparked my interest to see that uh, you had posted that you were tossing around the idea, at least, of doing a scratch in the sky in its entirety. That would be awesome. Yeah, you know what? It's something we never did as the Shames. I mean, even when we had that album out, we never did all the songs to it. A couple, but that was about it. Uh, it was just the way that you know we put together live shows, and we had other songs that we wanted to do. But I thought it would be a, a really good idea to to at least see if people would be interested and. I put on Facebook and I got just incredible response and the guys in the group are very excited too. So, you know, it's, uh, it's in a very nascent stage and we have to talk over exactly what we'd be doing and we'd be involved in it and all that other good stuff. But, um, I'm excited about it. I think it's a, a really neat opportunity. Yeah, it's one of those albums for me where I played it so much that it makes sense to me because uh, I would think of one song just naturally leading into the other. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, it's you, you know the thing about that album too, and it sounds braggadocious, but you know whatever it is, it is. Um, there's very few. We've had some great groups in Chicago. I mean, but there's only one album that I know of that people just absolutely relish and want to hear all the songs in it. You know, uh, the other groups obviously had their hits and people want to hear those. When you talk to them about, you know, different groups, they never say, oh yeah, and that album is my favorite. But they do that with the Crying Shakes. Uh, almost to everybody I talk about, they say Scratch in the Sky was just, you know, uh, a defining moment in, you know, listening to music and you guys did it. So to have something like that, uh, that people like so much and to not take advantage of that, I think would be foolish. I, I, I'd really like to display it uh, in the best that we can do. 
That's so good. Uh, You know, I have to set the scene for you as far as my level of fandom, uh, where your band was concerned. First, you guys were so popular around the Midwest, especially in and around Chicago. I'm from Racine, Wisconsin, and I know you made it up that way and, and in other parts of Wisconsin when you guys were traveling and playing. My sister is five years older than I am, and so I had access to her records. And by that, I mean, I would sneak into her room and play all her stuff when (laughs) she was out of the house. (laughs) You know, for me, a handful of albums is what I was playing on her record player. And they were albums that were miraculous to me, even as a 10, 11 year old kid. Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, The Beatles, Rubber Soul, The Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle, and The Crying Shames, Scratch in the Sky played those over and over and I always tell my sister you probably would have gotten a lot more play out of those albums if I hadn't been playing them so much it was almost like it was the sound of the summer I remember the windows open and and listening to those albums it was it was kind of magical Tom yeah you know what uh, what you're saying is exactly the way I feel about those two and you're putting us in really great company when you talk about pet sounds and and uh, rubber soul revolver those type of things um, that's kind of the way I feel about Scratch in the Sky. It's in that, you know, that area that you just go, geez, I'd like to listen to that entire thing. So we were very fortunate. We had a, a, a couple of, uh, actually a trio of really good songwriters. And I think James Ferris was probably in his zenith at that time. He was only a 19-year-old kid, but good Lord, uh, you know, what he put together and what Lenny Curley put together. Uh, when we did Scratch in the Sky, I think I... I just turned 21 when we were halfway through recording it. So, you know, we were kids. We were just young kids. And uh, I'm very proud of what we did at that time. And I know you were you were playing, touring relentlessly and rehearsing relentlessly, not just around in our area. And, and by the way, my sister, I think, saw you guys at, at the Racine YMCA or something like that, or City Hall or one of those venues. But I know that you played all over the country and with some pretty impressive talent that you were playing with, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Uh, we did play all over the country, mainly the East. You know, back then in the 60s, we had, what, maybe 190 to 200 million people in the country. So it's quite a bit smaller than it is right now. And when you got west of uh, Dallas, Texas, there was a lot of open space, but not a lot of big venues. You know, L.A. was huge. We never played there. I, I really right. regret that. But, right. But, uh, you know, everywhere else was just kind of, you know, little teeny places out in the middle of, the wild, wild west. But when you went east, you know, you had all of these colleges and towns. And we played, I think, if you take a look at the map east and you, you locate a college that had over 2,000 people in it, we played there. You know, yes. in towns all over the place back there. So, yeah, we did, we did tour relentlessly. We played about 200, 250 nights a year, which is a lot of playing, just an enormous amount. And when we weren't playing, we were rehearsing, and we were we were a fanatic band on wanting to sound as good live as we did in the studio. Uh, not only as good, but to sound exactly like we did in the studio. So yeah. when we rehearsed these songs, yeah. we rehearsed them just ad infinitum, without stop, until we had it at a point where it was so much a part of us that you know there was no way it could be anything less than than what we what our best was. 
and, and that's what our determination was at that point. And I think it was you who said once in an interview that uh, while on the road with the birds, that they they were the guys who said to you, write your own stuff because you've got the chops yeah, and the actually, voices to uh, carry it off. You have that recollected pretty decently. It was um, right after Sugar and Spice, uh, I think we got a call from, uh, it was a promoter in Chicago, and they, they were going to put on a, a show at... Uh, uh, Airy Crown Theater, which at that point was the huge place yeah. to go for Chicago. We're going to open for the birds. Yeah. And that was incredible. The birds and the Beatles were absolutely our heroes at that time. So, right. you know, we went in to do it and we did great. I mean, it was our first big show and it just came off great. The kids went crazy. We sounded very, very, very good. Um, we went in there originally and, you know, I introduced myself to the birds and they kind of, you know, blew it off. And I, you know, I wasn't used to that, but figured, well, you know, they're the, the headliners. They can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. And then they played, and they were great, too. Just phenomenal. And I remember after uh, they played, I was standing by the side of the stage, and Gene Clark uh, walked up to me and shook my hand and said, good show. And uh, I went, oh, that's pretty nice. As uh, he was walking off, yeah. um, uh, Roger McGuinn, or Jim McGuinn at that time, walked by me and he saw James and yes. together, and he said, you guys uh, were really good. He said, one thing you can do especially well is sing. He said, but I want to give you a hint right now. Is a, you know, a fellow Chicagoan. I didn't know he was from Chicago, but I guess he was. He said, unless you do your own material, you will never go anywhere. I looked at James, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, yeah. okay, let's write our own songs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's not a problem. Yeah, we'll just write our own stuff. Uh, and, you know, thank God, uh, you know, James and Lenny and Isaac started doing that. Uh, and, and, you know, we all helped out a little bit. But uh, the main thrust of the writing was at James and, and Lenny and Isaac. And, uh, you know, thank God they took it to heart. And also thank God they had the talent to persevere and do it. Writing songs is not an easy task, like giving birth to a baby and, uh you know, you go through a lot of stuff with it. And to write songs that that uh, are going to be hits is an amazing thing. And also, even something more amazing to me, they were writing songs for my voice. You know, it wasn't for them to sing or whatever. They were writing for me to sing. They had to take into account, you know, the right. way that I sang, not only the way the notes that I could hit, but the way that I sang them. And they did. I, You know, I look back at that and go, my, my Lord, that was just an amazing gift I was given that, you know, people could write songs that, that I could sing and could make sound, you know, fairly decent. You know, back in those days, too, Tom, but uh, before social media and everything else, radio stations were really breaking artists. I mean, WCFL, WLS, and even uh, closer to where I live, WOKY in Milwaukee, would play your stuff. Oh, and yeah. that's Not only were they just breaking artists. The DJs at that time were the gods of entertainment. People just cannot realize yeah. the power that they had. The people would follow their every move. You know, I mean, it was something else. It, nothing like that in the last 50 years has occurred that I know of. But I mean, with Dick Biondi and Dex Card and all of those guys. Yeah, and the guys at WOK. Sure. A lot of the guys from LS came from. Yeah, Bob Berry is one who comes to mind. And Ron Riley came from OKY. Yeah. They were both up there. So anyway, uh, yeah, it was incredible what they did. Uh, we didn't have, you know, the the internet and things like that. So you communicated by just listening to what the DJs told you, because that's where your life revolved as a kid. 
And music, I think, to our generation was a much more important and much more personal type of thing than it is now, much more viscerally than what happens today. It seems like, you know, people listen to it, and that's great, and they dance, but, you know, I mean, people live that music. It was just a a different time. Thank God we were, you know, uh, popular in that time. I, I, I really... I'm so grateful that uh, we were able to put out records that people liked, and we did it at a time that uh, was an important time in the music industry. It's true what you say, too, and and that's why back in those days, people always say, I remember exactly where I was when I first heard that song. It was summer of 67, you know, something like that. It's a, You are very right about that, yeah. I was on a date with, uh, you know, with uh, whoever, and, you know, I had been trying to get a date with her for the last six months, and your song came on, and it's, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Where did you go to high school, and is that where you started to meet some of the original members of the Crying Shames? Yeah, great question. I went to a high school, uh, it was called St. Procopius Academy in Lyle, Illinois. Uh, it was an all-boys Catholic school, and now it's called Bennett Academy, and it's uh, boys and girls. It's still in Lyle, and it's a great school. It's a wonderful place. Um I met Jerry Stone there when I was uh, a freshman. He was a sophomore, and uh, he, he and I were about the same size. So I, I think you kind of you know tune into people that that aren't real intimidating. <laughs> Jerry wasn't. He was a great guy, and we you know palled around a little bit, but he was still older than me, so we didn't too much. Uh, I also uh, knew a couple of other guys there that were in a group called the Maybes that were a big, big, big group. You know, back then they they played at sock hops with Dick Biondi and things like that. Yeah, Chico Ledesma was one of the guys, and uh, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the drummer. But anyway, uh, the reason I'm mentioning the Maybes, uh, Jim Holvey was in the Maybes, and Jim Holvey wrote all of the hit records for the Buckinghams. Oh yeah, yeah. So anyway, you know, I got to meet Jerry then. I went away to school at the University of Illinois, and I went to study medicine, which was a joke. I, you know, I'm. I'm I'm fairly bright, but I'm not a scientist. <laughs> and, you know, I, I took just totally the wrong things. And uh, I dropped out of school after a year. I mean, I felt like I was a loser. And I came <laughs> back uh, to where I lived, Westmont. And there was a junior college. And I thought, well, I can give that a try and see if I can get myself straightened out. Well, I, I went to this junior college in LaGrange, LaGrange Junior College, and I got straight A's and everything, you know, so I, I realized I wasn't a total dummy. Right. There, <laughs> I saw Jerry Stone, who was kind of searching, you know, kind of a, when you're an 18 to 19 year old guy, you don't know what the heck you're doing. Yeah. You know, what do you do for the rest of your life? And you go, <laughs> I think I'll go get a milkshake, you know. <laughs> Jerry Stone was there, and we just, you know, hit it off, obviously, because we knew each other. And we started hanging out and all that stuff, and we went to see a, a couple of groups play. Uh, I thought, the, you know, it was, it was great. And I was glad Jerry brought me along with him because he knew these guys. Jerry had played guitar in high school. And he, he was quite an accomplished guitar player. And we were sitting up in the lounge of this junior college one day. And Jerry, you know, just uh, turned to me and he said, you know, I want to put my band back together. I'm, I'm really, you know, chomping at the bit to do that. I said, oh, that's great, Jerry. He said, do you know anybody that can sing? <laughs> I said, yeah, I can <laughs> I had no training whatsoever. I hadn't sung a note, not even in the shower, since I left 
grade school. I was a you know one of the lead singers in the Catholic choir at that time. Yes, I knew I had a voice that could hold a tune. I said I could. He said, "Okay, good. Come out uh, uh, Sunday to my house. We're going to have a, a tryout for a singer." And I said, "Okay, great." So what I did is I knew like five or six Beatles songs. Yeah. And when he said, "Okay, what would you like to do?" I you know just started going into the Beatles songs, and uh, you know said, "Oh, this is really good. This sounds this sounds fantastic." So. I went back home. Jerry called me. He said, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. And uh, I went back to the next rehearsal. It was really good. And went back to the third one. And I was told that the bass player quit because he thought if I was in the band that we, they would go nowhere. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we got another guy from, from LaGrange Junior College who was a, a great guy, funny as heck, brilliant guy, Dave Purple. He said, I can play bass. So, okay, come on out and we'll see what you can do. Well, he did the same five Beatles songs that I did, because I told him that's what I did, and he nailed it. He played those things incredible. So he said, oh, good, we've got a bass player. About six months later, we found out that Dave had never touched a bass in his life. <laughs> he was a, an accomplished musician. He was a great keyboard player, but he'd never touched a bass. And he ended up being one of the best bass players I have ever heard at all. You know, listen to the things that... A Sugar and Spice album, and this is a guy that's been playing bass for six months total, and listen to what he put on that, just amazing. So, uh, you know, that's how we started. One other guy we had in the band, too, he was a keyboard player, a young kid. Uh, he and his family moved to uh, California before we ever got started. Uh, Dave Morgan is his name. Uh, Dave is still in California, and he is one of the lead singers with Three Dog Night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he played nice. keyboards for Stone Canyon Band with uh, Ricky Nelson. Wow. He was a very good musician. And his uh, sister, Nancy, uh, very, very pretty girl. And uh, when they she moved to California, she met John Ritter and married him. So. Oh, right. Yeah, that's great. I know. So, you know, when you say, how did you get into it? I stumbled into it, and I stumbled across a bunch of people who were very talented. I still don't know how they you know, took me. And I still don't know how I ever did what I did. But. It already sounds like the movie, That Thing You Do, and just the way that it all kind of came together and, and the breaks and everything else. Well, it, The Thing You Do, I swear to God, they wrote it about us. Did, yeah. Are, are you familiar with our story about Sugar and Spice, how we did that? I know that you did it because you originally intended to do a Beatles song, but didn't get permission from George Harrison or something. Right. And we had to learn a new song we did the night before we learned it and we went in the next day and recorded it <laughs> we recorded sugar and spice uh and it, you know obviously it turned out real well yeah it did the thing that's that's incredible about that we recorded the song and as we were packing up it was at sound studio down down uh town chicago off of Wacker in Michigan. In the same building Sound Studio was, was WLS. So we're packing up and going away, and they had uh, printed what they call acetates, which is, the, well, you're familiar with it. It's sure. They use for print records. So we're packing up, and we got up on Michigan Avenue, and we're going home, and we had on WLS it like we did all the time. And probably about a block into our drive, Dex Card comes on and says, this is a group that I discovered. They're called the <laughs> Brian Shane. <laughs> oh, wow. He said, this is the first time you're going to hear from him, and it's not the last. And he played Sugar 
in space. Oh, my gosh. Driving down, you know, on Michigan Avenue. I mean, it was just, ah! Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's what you do. You know, it's just amazing. The Beatle or the George Harrison song, was it uh, If I Needed Someone? Is that the one that he would not let you do? That's exactly it. And uh, I thought we did that pretty well. Well, it's on you know, one of our albums, and, and it sounds good on the album. I thought it would have been a, uh, you know, maybe a hit also, but I'm, I'm not uh, disappointed at all that we released Sugar and Spice instead. Uh, by the way, uh, to take a step back and uh, to go back to your college days, because I think I heard this somewhere before, that you were actually a fraternity brother of Dick Butkus? I sure was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> University of Illinois. And uh, one of the skills that I had in my life was I was able to play golf pretty well. Uh, I was on the golf team at the University of Illinois. And uh, I, because of that, I, I was invited into... Uh, a fraternity called Kai-Fi, which was a fraternity of guys who were basically athletes. Yeah. One of the guys in it was Dick Butkus. Uh, he was a junior at that time. He wasn't living there, but he'd come in for what we call beer blast, which was, you know, basically you'd go to the weekend and drink beer till you couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a couple of guys. Mike Tolliver, who was the uh, quarterback for Illinois at that time, went on to play with the New York uh, Jets. Uh, you yeah. know, we were both. So, yeah, Dick Butkus was two years older than me. He was a fraternity brother of mine. I'm five foot eight and a hundred and at that point maybe a hundred and forty five pounds dripping wet. He was six foot three and a half and two fifty six. Yeah, a beast. Yeah, he was, <laughs> yeah, he, he was a nice guy. I, you know, he was nice, but I, I can remember the first time shaking his hand, and it was like his hand engulfed my whole body. You know, it was just amazing and. Uh, yeah, so I was a fraternity brother of Dick Butkus. I know that after Sugar and Spice, I think your next big song was I Want to Meet You, which is it true that James Fairs wrote that about a Playboy uh, model? Yeah, he did. Back then, if you remember, you couldn't say anything that was in the least bit risque. So we told everybody yeah. about a, a girl that he saw in Montgomery Ward's catalog. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Wisconsin, we're coming down from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we were told we had to have another hit record. Oh, gee, what are we doing? Jim Ferris was sitting in the back of the van, and he was looking at this, uh, uh, you know, uh, Playboy uh, pullout, and he said, boy, I'd like to meet you. And he just sat down, he looked at Jerry Stone, Jerry looked at him, and they both sat in the back of the the bus, and James wrote the darn thing, you know, right then. And uh, the reason Jerry was there, James went through, you know, a lead and this was going to be a real short song. They said, this has got to be longer than this. So Jerry said, why don't you do this, this, and this on the lead? And he did that. And James came. He said, Toad, come on. I want to teach you this. So he taught me that. And later on that morning, we went into sound studios. I mean, just wow. We didn't know the song at all. Uh, and we recorded it. And uh that was a hit record, too. It's amazing. I mean, you're young enough that you just don't know any better, and you just go in and do it, right? You know what? That's exactly the truth. Yeah, you don't know what you're doing is is not normal. You know, <laughs> and you don't realize that uh, having no sleep in two days is going <laughs> to slow you up a bit. But it just did. Our whole, you know, uh, album, Sugar and Spice album, we did in like 17 hours. And the way we did it is that we went in and recorded in the morning, we had a, a job up in, uh, oh, where was it, uh, the Chippewa Flowage area of uh, Wisconsin, way the heck up north. Yeah, up north. We, yeah, we went and we did that. I mean, you know, up north, it would be the middle part of uh, Minnesota, that far north. Right. And uh, we came, drove straight back home, 
got to the studio at 8 o'clock and recorded some more until about, oh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then we had to go play at uh, University of Iowa. And we did that and came back. And I mean, you know, three hours of sleep, maybe, in the two days. And had to do the rest of the album, which we did. And, uh, you know, it's basically our live show. You know, we knew those real well. We didn't have time to prepare anything else. So we did our live show. And uh, it came out as a pretty decent album. So how did the idea f- kind of germinate for uh, for the Scratch in the Sky album? Because this was different. This was something that, in my view, is is sort of a masterpiece. Uh, well, thank you very much. I wish I could take you know any credit for it, but none. Uh, all the credit for that is uh, with James Ferris. Uh, James was a perfectionist. Uh, he wasn't happy with the fact that we had to do our first album in 17 hours. He yeah. had ideas, and he wanted to put those down on tape. And uh, he really pushed for it. He pushed our producers, you know, that this is what we were going to do. And they said, well, we could do it if we had a hit record off of it. And thank God he wrote Could We Were In Love. And, you know, with that, we went into Columbia, and we kind of demanded that we were going to take some time on this. And it took us a full month. We would go into New York and record all week and then um, on the weekends we'd go out and play at different venues around the country you know play two nights and come back the, the next monday and start recording again monday evening so we did that but before we went in we did just enormous amounts of rehearsal uh i can remember being at james ferris house and down in his basement where he had his record player and his amplifier and stuff and he was just going through ideas and he said you know what do you think about this and I said, that sounds really good. I'd, I'd like it in this key, if you could. I'd like it a little higher or a little lower. And he changed that. And he would show me, you know, how he had written it. And I would sing it. And I said, can I change it? I just want to do this, this, and this. And he was gracious enough to allow me to make, you know, personal changes to the melody that I thought were, you know, fit the song better, possibly because they fit my voice better. Um but, you know, we, we did that. We did that for a long time. When we did Could Be We're In Love, I think we rehearsed that in uh, uh, the Blue Village uh, in Westmont, uh, at the, where we used to rehearse. We, we rehearsed there for, I think, four or five days just on that summer. Just, you know, and it's not that difficult a song. The background is pretty unbelievable, and they play a lot of unique uh, guitar parts on it. But... We did that over and over again. I think we redid that song seven or eight different times. Totally different. And we finally came up with what we went into the studio with. And, uh, and it was, you know, a really nice song. And I remember, you know, listening to that with headphones and, and um, Sunshine Palm and Up on the Roof is Spectacular and Cobblestone Road. It's just the production value, it really is sparkling, actually. Well... Thank you. That's the guys playing. Like I said, we wanted to play, you know, live as well as we wanted to duplicate live what we did in the studio. And the production values were James Fair's. I mean, he, he, uh, you know, you listen to some of the backgrounds we we did on those things. I, I have a, a the ability to separate the background voices from the lead voices, and you know, and leave the instruments out and listen to it. And I'm just absolutely blown away by what we had accomplished at that time. I mean, it wasn't just good. It was just stellar good. It was, uh, it's still kind of breathtaking to hear. So 
those production values again that was james ferrett's i mean that that album is his signature um he uh as a 19 year old kid was able to accomplish something that uh we still talk about 55 60 years later yeah for sure and and it's one of those things where i don't know if it was ahead of its time or what the deal was but very similar to the zombies by the way and i talked to colin blundstone not too long ago about yeah how odyssey and oracle was not well received uh, to the point where like you guys they ended up breaking up and maybe it was premature and you know time of the season came out a few months later and it was a hit was it columbia records that just wasn't backing it enough to to get it out there for you yeah you know what i i there's so many things columbia is definitely one you know we had could be were in love it it came on the billboard charts at 90 and never got above 85 and it yeah. sold two hundred thousand copies in the midwest it was number one in the midwest for six full weeks and when it came off of that it became number one in texas and in St. Louis for four weeks. And then it came down off of that. It became number one in Central Florida for three weeks. Came off of that in Baltimore. It was, even though it never got above 85, it was on the charts for almost one full year. There was something that really, you know, fell apart there. The other thing too, is that music was changing demonstrably at that time. Right. We were very much influenced by the, you know, the British invasion. We were very much kind of a British invasion group. We also liked a lot of other groups, and we tried to, you know, uh, give homage to them and the things that we did. But uh, rock was becoming a lot more uh, hard, hard-edged at that time. Yeah, it's still very melodic and didn't have a lot of hard-edged things. Although live, you know, you'd see us and go, "Wow," you know. The Who told us that we rocked harder than anybody they played with. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, but, you know, we didn't put it on on tape. Uh, so, you know, we were caught in between, uh, you know, that the sound of the, the British invasion and the hard stuff that was happening. So, you know, Columbia, yeah, but they had their minds on other things. And maybe a lot of it was because of what we did. Now, I know that, I know bands, you know, just, it, it happens. And that was a very, that was a very difficult time, like you say, with all kinds of uh, transition going on with Cream and Hendrix and everything else. It was a, it was Vietnam a... Vietnam War was it? Right, right. It was just turmoil all over, and rock was starting to reflect the turmoil. And actually, we weren't. You know, maybe if we would have stuck together another six or eight months, we, we would have come out. Uh-huh. Uh, I wish we would have, because there were a lot of talented guys on that. In that, yeah, group. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and you know, our live show was so much different than that. We were very bombastic, and uh, I've had guys that you know are now heads of or were heads of large companies saying, you know, to me, you know, back in the day, I used to follow you guys, and of all the people I've seen, and I mean, they had huge groups that the you know, around their labels and stuff. They said, your group live could hold a candle that, in fact, would be as good as any of the top two or three that I know of. And I went, wow. You guys could have done stadium shows. I said, well, that's, you know, that's good to know. So we were kind of in a transition between 
what we did live and what we recorded. So, you know, um, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, blame it on anybody. It's just who we were. And it's, uh, you know, a growing time. And we just didn't have the patience to go on with it anymore. We thought after uh, that album, we should have hit the big time. And it didn't at all. So yeah, it's great though that you've that you've been able to uh, do some concerts over the years, including the Cornerstone shows, and and uh, right. people people in Chicago have been able to see you every now and then. And what are the plans for this scratch in the sky thing? What are you thinking at this point? I know it's in the early stages. But you know what? I I just put out a feeler to the guys, you know, in the group that we play with. Um, I guess I can call them the crying chains. We've been playing with the same group of musicians for about 30 different years. I just put out an idea that it would be really neat if we do some things next year to just do a concert, three or four of them, where we do the Scratch in the Sky album from beginning to end, just yes. the way it was. The things, you know, falling into each other and all of that other stuff. And of course, you know, we'd have to add other songs to it, you know, but I want to do. Scratch in the sky, beginning to end, no changes, whatever, just the way the album is. And they were all real excited on it, about it. And I, I put it on uh, um, my Facebook page. Yeah. And I think I've got like 600, you know, responses to it so far. And I just uh. put it on 1030 or 11 o'clock last night. Right. Yeah. This next year, we're going to work on it. We are definitely going to do uh, a few concerts. I don't know how many we will do depends on how many people want to see it. But we're going to do the Scratch of the Sky album. Now, I'm here in Las Vegas, so let me give me enough time to figure out where I have to travel to uh, to see one of those shows, because I would really look forward to that. I will let you know. Matter of fact, the next time I'm in Las Vegas, let's go over to Caesars and have uh, the brunch over there. That's pretty good. Let's do that. Let's do that. That'd be great. Well, uh, I know life is good for you. You're you're retired. You had gotten into business. You live in, what is it, Mission Viejo in California? Yeah, Mission Viejo. I was in the loan business for about 35 years. I'm retired now. I'm 75, and I've been retired since I was 62. I have uh, five grandchildren, two children. My wife and I have been married 53 years. So I have had a very, very, very blessed life. You know, like everybody, there have been some difficulties in it, but the overall book of it has been, uh, you know, the kind of life you would go, my gosh, they should make a movie of that. Yeah, and like you say, maybe they have that thing you do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe they have. Well, Tom, you're a good man, and uh, I can't wait to hear more about the future plans. You've uh, made a lot of people happy over the years with the music that you guys did back in the 60s, and we all appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And you, get, you can get in touch with me anytime you want. You're a a delight to talk to. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll catch up again soon. All right. God bless. Great, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. That band, just a snapshot of our youth, I guess, and you know that so many of those bands from that era were victims of bad management and other things, and unfortunately, the cry and shames fell into that category. Recently, though, Tom has been performing with original cry and shames members Jim Pilster and James Fairs. We'll keep you updated on what's happening in the future. That is it for this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you next time. Take the fake show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Sunshine of my